Hello, and welcome back to Hit Factory, a podcast about the films of the 1990s, and now infamous film Twitter small entity. It's just Aaron on this side of the microphone once again today, uh, but I brought along a wonderful guest. Joining me today from New York is film writer and a good friend of the show, Jason Miller. Jason, welcome to Hit Factory. Hey, honored to be here. Honored to be here. Exciting stuff. You are a, a friend of the show, have been for a while now. Jason, for our listeners, is also a uh, patron of Hit Factory. Uh, and he is evidence that if you give Carly and I personally enough love, bestow enough devotion, that you may find yourself the recipient one day of a direct message on Twitter on a Wednesday asking if you can hastily get yourself prepared for a podcast on a Saturday afternoon uh, to talk about uh, a movie that is very important to you. It just, it might happen. So Jason, thank you very much for being accommodating. Thank you for uh, preparing yourself for this and getting ready on short notice. You have saved the day. It's uh, it's always a pleasure to talk about somebody that I am probably talking about somewhere else anyway. (laughs) Well, uh, as of recently, I am also talking a lot about this particular uh, filmmaker. So discerning listeners of the show may remember that a couple episodes ago on our Primal Fear episode with Jesse Hawken, I briefly referenced a fantastic 1978 film called Remember My Name with Geraldine Chaplin. Uh, the director of that film is a man named Alan Rudolph. And uh, since then, I have had an opportunity to see a very small sampling of his films. Uh, and I have confidently arrived at the conclusion that he is a, a filmmaker of very obvious, very special, very unique talent, really a, a, a very brilliant filmmaker, uh, and that his relative obscurity, uh, even within a lot of pretty hardcore cinephile circles, is something that I consider a quiet injustice. So in that spirit and in that vein today, Jason and I are going to be talking about Alan Rudolph and his 1992 film, Equinox. What about these twin boys? Who are they? Who did they turn out to be? How much do they know, if they know anything? A shocking secret. Get back! You understand me? And we do know him? No. A terrifying world. And two brothers separated at birth. I'm told you were an orphan. You didn't even know your old man or old lady. Is that right? Does that matter to you? My whole life seems to be taking place without me in it. Maybe you're schizophrenic. Have you ever thought of that? Identical, yet so different. You good at work today? Baby, I don't mess around. You're the best. Why do you gotta do that kind of work? Don't worry. You ain't gonna catch nothing from me except your breath. I never know what to do, so I don't do anything. I just go home in my hole and I put it all someplace else. How do you feel, Freddy Ace? Like God. What the hell's God got to do with it? We ain't no different than any other business. Now, their worlds are coming closer. You have to face yourself, Henry. You have to face the real you. To the moment of Equinox. So this is a fascinating movie, first and foremost. Uh, I had not seen it, again, had not even really heard of it until I had started uh, delving more into the world of Alan Rudolph. But Jason, I know that you are someone who uh, does have a considerable amount of experience with Alan Rudolph's films. uh, And 
this is one that you, I think even briefly before we had solidified plans for you to come on the show, uh, had said that uh, you might want to talk about. So can you start a with telling me a little bit about your experience with Alan Rudolph's films and, and maybe Equinox specifically? Yeah. Uh, Alan Rudolph, extraordinary filmmaker, extraordinary writer, um, primarily maker of American movies with these like star studded casts. It's sometimes kind of ridiculous when you're going through his IMDb, you're <laughs> like, how are these movies have this many people that we all know and love and nobody has seen any of them. Yeah. Uh, it's kind of, it's kind of ridiculous. Um, I had, through various people that I follow, uh, very seasoned cinephiles, I, ha I had heard about Alan Rudolph, but I hadn't watched too many of his movies. And then I had a chance, like yourself, to see Remember My Name, uh, which is extraordinary and, and still to this day might be my favorite Alan Rudolph movie. Um, mm -hmm. Extraordinary. It's it's, you know, it's like a romance movie that's also like a Hitchcock thriller. It's it's unlike anything. Uh, it's it's a beautiful, great movie. Uh, and basically in 2017, the quad, uh, in the New York, in New York city mounted a retrospective of his movies along with his most recent feature. He hadn't, he hadn't made a feature in like 10 or 12 years. And in 2017, he released a feature called Ray meets Helen. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, around the release of that, they played pretty much every single one of his movies they could get their hands on, including on a lot of really nice prints. I will say if you're a programmer or a movie lover and you know people, these are absolutely movies that you can find prints of in really nice quality. Um, that was how I saw Equinox. I had seen a couple other movies in the Alan Rudolph retro, had not uh, heard pretty much anyone speak really, really highly of Equinox. People were like, yeah, it's good, you know. Um, and then I decided to go out one afternoon. Uh, I, I think I took off from work or something and, <laughs> and was like, Oh, I, I'll let me go see this Alan Rudolph movie with Matthew Modine as twins, uh, on some, on some dead ringers shit. And, um, I decided I, I went in and I was blown away. I, uh, I, I totally was like, where has this movie been in all my life? Like, this is such a, this is such a wonderful and unique movie. Uh, I think as you were saying, it's, he's a very clear and obvious extremely talented filmmaker who conjures a very specific world of his own. That's while it references and exists in a world of movies, it's entirely his own. Absolutely. He has so many distinct trademarks just in having watched a, a kind of small helping of, of his movies. Um, and, and one of those I think is a, a, a thing that kind of creates a, a sort of emotional distance in people, which is that, he is very much inspired by uh, many of the filmmakers of uh, the new Hollywood, this sort of kind of realism, this very grounded kind of quality to his filmmaking. He famously is a protege of Robert Altman, which we'll talk about a little bit more in a moment. Um, but he also has uh, clearly a, a very deep-seated sort of romantic entanglement with classic cinema uh, of, of the studio system and, and this kind of sweeping grandeur that uh, he often kind of gives way to. And those two things competing with one another, I think, oftentimes means that some more cynical filmmakers or film watchers, rather, may find his stuff a little, a little sappy. 
Uh, and then the people who are looking for something more broadly kind of populist and and sappy end up finding something that is a little bit more nuanced, a little bit more complex and and kind of barbed than than what they want. And uh, it's it's really a fascinating thing to watch. I think that you're if you're attuned to his wavelength, it works. Uh, but as you said, there are very clear kind of markers in all of these films where I'm like, yeah, of course, this is something that like would potentially be off-putting to a mass audience. Yeah, and and again, I mean, it's funny because it looks like, and this is this is where like the world of streaming and and only hyper-specific recommendations designed by algorithms can kind of lead kind of lead you astray. Where it's like, no, this is these Equinox is the exact kind of movie that you would have accidentally picked up at a blockbuster, turned it on, and been like, who is this guy? Who made this movie? I have no idea. I've never heard of this dude. Uh, what's going on here? And and again, I understand uh, some people who may not immediately take to Alan Rudolph, but I, I would just say he's doing something very complex at a very high level, uh, usually at a very fast speed. Uh, that's definitely Equinox hits the ground running. Mm-hmm. Um so it, it's just a thing of like, I would recommend a slight bit of patience and know that like he's sort of living in his own world and you got to you got to get used to the waters a little bit. But once you're there, I think it's it's really magical. Ironically, I feel like uh, a filmmaker, uh, a contemporary filmmaker who draws uh, so much inspiration from Rudolph uh, has found significant purchase among cinephiles. And that's uh, Paul Thomas Anderson. I know he's often someone who, you know, is, is uh, uh, regarded as a, an Altman acolyte, but a lot of the ways that his career has progressed and evolved over the course of the last handful of decades, the more that he's sort of given way to kind of the uh, melodrama inherent in some of his stories feels very classically Rudolph. Punch, punch Drunk Love especially is feels... Again, the the people that sometimes PTA cites are like Robert Downey Sr. and Demi and obviously Altman, who he worked with. Um, but sometimes you, you pull through sometimes and you're like, I see a lot of Rudolph in you, man. Like that's. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it's very, I think, telling from from like a personal standpoint that Punch Drunk Love remains, I think, one of my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson films uh, and one that I think uh, kind of encapsulates this particular mode of filmmaking uh, the best out of anything in his oeuvre. Uh, so let's talk a little bit about Rudolph and and do some maybe foundational work here with them, because I, I imagine that some of our listeners probably don't know a ton of his movies. Uh, They're very hard to come by. Uh, you said that you got a chance to see quite a few of them in uh, a, a wonderful retrospective with beautiful prints. I will say that for most people, uh, that experience is uh, one that is sadly going to be out of reach. Uh, most of these films, I think, in, in fact, all the ones that I've seen so far, uh, lack any sort of proper home video release. Um, there are a couple of DVD copies of Equinox specifically that are like a region four or something like that. Um, remember my name famously was like lost for years before it, it kind of came back into the scene after the success of choose me, his film from 1984. Um, but none of these 
are readily available for uh, purchase on Blu-ray, uh, for streaming from some of the usual sites. Most of them that I've found have actually been available on things like Crackle and Tubi with uh, commercial interruption. Yeah, no, absolutely, and, and it's a funny thing of like uh, I believe I believe Equinox is free is one of the films streaming for free on Plex as well. <laughs> uh, oh no, that's Trouble in Mind. I'm sorry, Trouble in Mind. That's how I watched it. I watched it on Plex's platform, mm-hmm. uh, and it's it's just a kind of example of it's sort of like I know I know it's frustrated cinephiles that do love Alan Rudolph, but it, it's, it's it's sort of a thing of it's like. It kind of seems like other than the really intense Rudolph acolytes, nobody knows where to put him. There's not like an easy category he fits in. And I think Mm -hmm. that speaks to his broader work. I mean, again, like you sort of said earlier, it's this really intense artifice that's happening without ever being fully hyper stylized. But then he's choosing actors who are very grounded, who are very meticulous, like, again, his leads um Carradine obviously who's wonderful in 10 of his movies Mm -hmm. but even even Chris Christopherson Matthew Modine here they're very grounded not hyper expressionistic performers and uh then they're put in these situations that are highly stylized and so you kind of get this tension that you were speaking about where um every scene is about sort of the real and the not real in the scene interacting. And then that also coincidentally is usually what his movies are like topically about. Um, his movies are generally about um, fantasies and the version of yourself that you want to be and the version of your life that you think should exist and what's different than the one that it is now. And is that possible? And these are things that he's always exploring and, um, sort of taking on different angles. Uh, and I'll say for as much overlap as it really feels like there is with an Alan Rudolph movie, none of it, none of it really feels redundant. Like mm-hmm. I, again, I know you watched choose me, choose me is a great movie about love and, and the complexities of love and relationship dynamics. Um, and you could say the same thing with remember my name, but as much as there's overlap between the two of them, they, they are their own worlds. Um, and I think he, he he's really, really excellent at bringing that out and, and very vividly making it realized. So Alan Rudolph gets his start uh, in the 1970s working as an assistant director to, as we already mentioned, uh, the great Bobby Altman. Uh, his first gig is on The Long Goodbye. I think he follows that up with California Split and eventually uh, is an assistant director on Nashville as well. Altman then gives him his uh, first official screenwriting credit on, uh, remind me of the name of this one, this is Buffalo Bill and the Indians, correct? Correct. Yes. And then, of, of course, he leverages this work into his own filmmaking career with some early works in the 1970s. Uh, his, his sort of proper debut uh, is one called Welcome to L.A. that features the aforementioned Keith Carradine Geraldine Chaplin, Sissy Spacek is in this as well. Harvey Keitel. Harvey Keitel. And so Rudolph uh, really just ends up making, you know, this this film that in a lot of ways feels indebted to the work of Altman. It has this kind of ensemble structure. There's a lot of kind of musical pieces uh, sort of like uh, in, in Nashville. And uh, he begins to kind of create his own sort of characterization of what his work will be, I think, properly with the great Remember My Name. Um, and, and it definitely has Altman-esque qualities to it. 
but one of the things that I, I think is so fascinating about his work and and this crystallized as I began to watch more of it is uh, how small he makes his worlds. And while sometimes I can find that sort of forbidding or, you know, like a, a incidental quality to things that are more minor or kind of smaller budget or what have you, it, it gives a very sort of lean, graceful and, and really fun coincidental quality to all of the things that happen within this world. It kind of plays out like theater uh, where you know that there's just a sp- specific cast of characters and and all of them are going to be recurring. They're all going to bump into one another uh, and they are limited to a few uh, key spaces and environments within, within the world that he's constructing. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, there are these places of return for all of these characters that sort of end up being like, whether it's a diner in Trouble in Mind, here it's this Italian restaurant in Equinox. But there's there tends to be these spaces where people gravitate to and change and, and experience change over the course of these movies through it. Um, and also, I will say, obviously, it helped him tremendously making the movies. Uh, I know this is one of those things like the sort of Val Luton thing of being able to realize and make your um, economic constraints into benefits towards your filmmaking, of being able to take limitations and actually turning that into a positive and really being able to make your spaces. So again, like he actually has put out a, a significant number uh, of features across four decades, three decades. Um, But he's able to do that because his movies were not tremendously expensive. He would always get very talented, very well-liked actors, and he would keep his movies tight, tidy, and move on to the next one. And so it's a, it's a, it's a thing you see less now of nowadays. It was definitely a little bit easier back in the seventies and eighties to get away with this kind of filmmaking. Um, but it, it really works and he's able to both, um, take things that should be limitations and, and makes them these extreme virtues, uh, in his films. Yeah. He also tends to employ like a specific character who ends up almost kind of being, and this is maybe a clumsy way to put this, but sort of like the, the Greek chorus of the film, sort of like the kind of the, the moral thrum of everything that's happening around them. It isn't always the person who is maybe uh, in those environments of return, but it is often someone who kind of lives and dwells within those spaces and comes to sort of be the centrifugal kind of pull that all the other characters come around. Uh, I think of specifically in choose me and then again i think also in in trouble in mind it's it's genevieve bujold or, or genevieve bujold i should say um in this film equinox that we're looking at now it, it gives way to uh, in my mind uh the character played by lara flynn boyle uh, as beverly who is sort of even though maybe the person who occupies the least screen time of, of some of our kind of key players here uh is the person who has maybe one of the biggest kind of on-screen revelations and the one who has you know kind of this pull around her of all these characters that brings them to their eventual points of conclusion and, and revelation or lack thereof right and the the i'll just say i'll keep it broad and say that the pivotal moment in equinox uh is something that seems very inevitable and what leads to change and what leads to really what the large takeaway from the movie is isn't just this inevitable event that seems like it's always going to happen, but it's the immediate reaction after that by Laura Flynn Boyle. 
that actually completely reshapes how we see our would-be protagonist. Uh, I guess we should probably give some regular kind of description of Equinox. Um, Equinox is uh, a film starring two versions of Matthew Modine, one (laughs) who is this very impotent, uh, very losery version of himself who works as a mechanic in his father's car shop. And uh, the other Matthew Modine is uh, a gangster. He's sort of on the lower level, but he's clearly rising in the ranks. Um, the Again, as, as Aaron mentioned, a lot of these are sort of these larger casts and ensemble movies. So you have people like Laura Flynn Boyle, who is uh, Henry... Uh, basically kind of is in love with Laura Fenn Boyle. It's a little complicated, uh, but it's his, it's his friend's sister. Um, and then the entire movie, the other, uh, the other Matthew Modine, Freddie Ace, the bad one is sort of with his gangster pals. He's with uh, his wife, Lori Singer, who also has twins. Uh, Rudolph very much enjoys just populating the background of this movie with just <laughs> random sets of twins. So uh, many twins. So there's so many twins in this movie. Uh, and you kind of see uh, Freddie Ace moving through the ranks of this uh, this gangster scene, primarily run by the incredible, one of my all-time favorite actors, Fred Ward, mm-hmm. uh, who's, who's great in this and and what one thing Rudolph movies always have is they always have these like ancillary supporting performances where you're like, this is one of my favorite things I've ever seen. Uh, and, and people, even people who don't like the movie will always point to like divine and trouble in mind or, mm-hmm. or Fred Ward in, in, uh, in Equinox as just these great performances. Yeah. Ward kind of gives me a, uh, like a Robert Loggia and lost highway sort of vibe here. And, and maybe it's just because the film itself kind of has a, a little bit of, of that tinge to it. That sort of, uh, you know, mid nineties postmodern noirish kind of vibe to it. But, uh, but I, I got a very similar kind of relational component there between him and Modine as with Loja and, uh, uh, uh Balthazar Getty character in, in lost highway. But uh, that that's a good succinct summation of what this movie is. But it, it also doesn't really reflect, I think, what the movie feels like expressively when you watch it. And I think that that's a big thing about Rudolph's movies, which is that uh, plot is sort of secondary to a lot of his greater aims with the film. And uh, while the film, as you describe it, may sound a, a little bit windy, maybe a little bit kind of like abstracted, confusing of, you know, the, this duality, these doubles that are, are kind of crossing paths or, uh, you know, missing one another in, in this existence. At its heart, there's also an element of this that is just sort of broad, simple fantasy um, told through this kind of postmodern lens. It is really a kind of retelling of uh, Mark Twain's the, the Prince and the Pauper. But again, also, that is completely reductive of the experience of actually watching this thing. Um, and it's hard to articulate. It's hard to, to really uh, say what it is that conjures up the magic. So we're going to do our best here and, and see what we can, we can lay out for you. But uh, it's, uh, it, it's just something to behold. And, it, and from, from the get-go, just an unbelievable world he's, he's creating here. Yeah, within the first few shots, you're sort of seeing this extremely grungy uh, urban decay that's overflowing of 
uh, and and this happens in some of his other films as well, but his sort of, it almost feels sci-fi in the way mm-hmm. that he is generating this world that's related to somewhat our world, uh, but still feels different and removed and, and heightened. Even from those like very first frames of the film, uh, which starts with a bang, by the way, uh, I, I was in love with this movie from the very first shot after we see the equinox, as it were, uh, in the sky, we have kind of this like, you know, view of the moon, this beautiful sort of like electric guitar orchestral score going the credits roll. Uh, and then we dissolve to this ground level shot that's pointed sort of vertically up at the, the tops of these skyscrapers. It spirals around almost kind of violently and slowly descends past a row of American flags and drops us on the ground in this like hovel of uh, the destitute. And, you know, there are homeless everywhere and the, the place seems very dirty and, you know, steam coming out of every single orifice in the road. Uh, it is uh, as I think succinct and uh, impactful in evocation of some of the film's considerations as i've seen in in any of his other films it is a a really brilliant just kind of opening 10 15 seconds and we're introduced to uh, a character who will sort of kick off one of the the big kind of inciting incidents of the film which is uh, i think her name is helena they call her lena um and she's an older woman she appears to be destitute herself and she's being sort of corralled and carried on by another woman who's trying to get her to a hospital as she collapses and dies but she has a letter on her that she has written that seems to indicate uh, a encounter with a very wealthy gentleman in her past uh, an encounter that yielded a set of twins who were separated at birth and it just kind of kicks off right away into this sort of fantasy world. Uh, I, I think, Jason, maybe off mic, you you kind of mentioned almost as like a, a sci-fi sort of scenario or the way that it's kind of orchestrated here. And there is a little bit of this funny kind of just like ca- cartoonish wackiness to it when we're introduced to Henry. He's on a bus with his, his best buddy, uh, who's played by wonderful character actor Kevin J. O'Connor, who pops up in in movies all across the 90s, you know, in these uh, kind of thankless bit roles and doing a lot with them. <laughs> and uh, Henry is, to, to put it mildly, kind of a schmuck. And he gets pushed around a lot. And there's this hilarious moment where he's trying to find a piece of uh, a railing to hold on to to keep himself upright on this bumpy bus ride. And there's a gentleman just mean mugging him who's moving his hand to wherever Modine is trying to reach to prevent him from holding on. And it sets the tone very well, I think, for for what this movie is kind of going to be, which is one that asks us to identify emotionally and to sympathize with these characters a little bit and to kind of understand their interiority in these broad strokes, but also do that in a very funny way, in a way that has sort of like a like a Looney Tunes quality to it in in certain instances. No, absolutely. And I mean, his his level of like impotence is almost like a Jerry Lewis character uh, in that it's it's so cartoonish, his inability to like properly have a conversation with women. Uh, one of the first things we see of him is he literally just went like grocery shopping and bought 
the smallest items and then just a group of people appear out of nowhere and beat the <laughs> shit out of him. Yep. And and he's only able to leave with like a, a bag of flour. Right. Uh, I, I think to it's make even it like apartment. I think it's like talcum powder or something. Like it's like some sort of vessel for it that he's able to hide in his coat. And uh and uh, even when he gets upstairs, he uh lives next to a uh a lady of the night, as it were, played by Marissa Tomei and her pimp. Uh, very young Marissa Tomei, very gorgeous in this movie. Um, mm-hmm. Again, these movies always filled to the brim with just either great character actors or future stars. Um, and his 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 dealings with, uh, we see him also trying to call Laura Flynn Boyle and not being able to get a word out and just hanging up, even though she knows very well that it's his, it's him calling. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, he even tries to overcome his impotence by watching these very goofy uh, self-defense classes via VHS tapes. Uh, Absolutely hysterical. Incredible stuff. Incredible stuff. Um and there's even a moment where there's a callback to it later, which is so, so <laughs> great. And so, but it, it, it gets to this, uh, it gets to this really, again, it, it's almost like you're like, when you're watching an Alan Rudolph movie, sometimes it feels a little bit like you're slaloming between two realities and, and what he's conjuring is so specific, but it's between these sort of two different schools of how we conceive and understand movies, generally speaking. So he's happy to live in a universe like there's an equinox where both of them are are perfectly existing at once, but definitely for viewers, it sometimes can take a second to sort of grapple properly with what's happening. But I think when you do, it's really it's it's really enjoyable. Yeah, completely. And you know, there are these uh, sort of expressionistic gestures and this kind of goofiness that he's operating within that. I will be the first to admit, oftentimes uh, compelled me into a sense of like whimsy that, you know, there there is this, uh, I think, kind of uh, opportunity here that he's giving uh, where he's making a movie for movie lovers. And he is asking us to try to identify with it as an art form and, and kind of expose sort of the artifice and construction of this thing that he's made for us. It's funny that you say that. It's funny, not to cut you up, but it's funny mm-hmm. that you say that because that is a almost a verbatim segment of Roger Ebert's four-star review of Trouble in Mind, a movie mm-hmm. he wrote extremely hard for and was a big proponent of, and he absolutely tapped into it because of its ability that it's a movie that exists within the world of movies and within the world of movie watching and movie artificiality. And as long as you ultimately can be okay with that, I don't think there's any actual issue with uh, with getting into his movies. No, totally. And and I love that. I actually had not read that review, but I'm glad that uh, Ebert was able to to tap into that. We love Roger Ebert on Hit Factory Pod, despite uh, some naysayers in the Discord. We're big fans. Uh, but yes, you know, it, it's a con- it's a film that's in conversation with movies, and it's a film that's in conversation with its own audience. And I think specifically a particular type of audience, uh, like myself, who you know, sometimes posture towards maybe a more cynical perspective and like things that have a little bit more kind of edge to them and to uh, almost sort of like kneecap that impulse and say like, even you are susceptible to 
these expressionistic moments into this this kind of whimsy, this romanticism when it's played right. And at about the, you know, like the midpoint of the movie almost when we get into the intricacies of this letter that uh, Helena uh, drops at the beginning of the film and learn that it's the secret to this amassed fortune of millions of dollars that's rightfully owed to both of the twins in the film. And there's this, you know, kind of intrepid young writer, reporter played by uh, Tyra Farrell, uh, the great Tyra Farrell, who's an undersung, wonderful performer. I was getting hooked. I was like, this is a different kind of movie than I was expecting. And I am like getting drawn into its beautiful fantasy. Like we were talking about uh, the sense of conjured fantasy and things like that. There are even times where within a scene itself, a movie, the movie will have a different tone than the rest of the movie. Very notably, this is very obvious in uh, R.M. at Walsh's brief couple scenes Mm -hmm. where he plays a good Matthew Modine, uh, Henry's father, adoptive Mm -hmm. father. Uh, Henry doesn't know that, but he's his adoptive father. And it's funny because when you first encounter it, he has this, everything about the scene has this very vaudeville uh, energy. It's very zany out of <laughs> nowhere. Uh, and it's extremely, it's very funny, like, but it, it catches you very much off guard. And all the other performers in the scene are similarly following suit. And then you come to find out later in the movie that he actually literally was a vaudeville performer. Yes. So there's, there's sometimes, uh, and this is, I think this gets at a good thing about, Rudolph generally is that we like to think of films as their own convenient sort of universe that every film or even broadly every filmmaker makes their own world and everything very comfortably exists within this one sphere. And what's interesting about Alan Rudolph is that I think he believes that about people and that people carry their own realities and people carry their own fantasies and people carry their own desires and wants and expectations and what ends up happening is sometimes you're exposed to people who pull you into what feels like a completely different movie and he's able to he's able to capture that that sort of um gravity that certain type of people have uh within situations where you you no longer are just existing in this very comfortable space that you've 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 acclimated to you're you're then being dragged else elsewhere by people because that's how people work. Frenny. Well, what you and Richie Nunn got going is bad business. Surprised that I know? <laughs> hey, I don't know it ain't happening. I got a problem. I either fix it or I'm a schmuck. I mean nobody wants to kill himself, right? Huh? Huh? I wouldn't argue with that. Good. Don't argue. That's Richie. Always arguing, always mouthing off. His tongue ain't that close to his brain either. His old man Arnie, same thing. Freddy, go down 8th Avenue. So, Freddy, I'm told you were an orphan. That you grew up in a boy's home or something. That you didn't even know your old man or old lady. Is that right? Does that matter to you? Well, it's like a jockey in his mount. <laughs> I mean, with Richie, I knew the trainer, Arnie. But with you, I mean, hey, your old man could have been a coward. All I got to go on is the last flash of the tote. Which I might say sometimes is all I need, okay? Huh? Huh? So ain't it weird not knowing who you're supposed to grow up to be like? 
certain advantages. Oh, yeah? Name one. You grow up to be yourself. <laughs> Check the size of this head. Freddy Ace is indeed. Solitaire, Mr. Paris. Freddy Ace. Rudolph himself, you know, in, in an interview that I was reading, has this wonderful anecdote where he is sort of explaining kind of his uh, his approach to filmmaking and the way that he sort of characterizes uh, these these different elements of his film, the way that he makes things that feel sort of disparate and, and incongruous sort of work together and meld. Uh, and it goes back to a, an interview that he's conducting with a film critic uh, for Trouble in Mind when it's premiering at a festival. And they're sitting down in a restaurant that's pretty sparsely populated. And the, the gentleman asks him, you know, like, why are your movies so weird? Why are they so full of these, you know, kind of uh, inconsistent characters and these motivations that are kind of uh, broad and elusive and, and people behaving strangely with one another? They don't seem to be responding to the world of the film. And in that moment, someone in the, the restaurant cries out there he is and apparently the pope is driving by in the pope mobile and the entire <laughs> restaurant floods to the windows to go and watch the pope drive by and rudolph says it was the best answer i could have possibly given to this reviewer which is uh you know if you spend any time looking at people you'll find out that those things that feel idiosyncratic and strange about my work are actually more real than the worlds that are conjured by a lot of films that feel more tonally consistent to you. And I think that's beautiful. No, it's, it's great. And it, and it captures something unique about people and, 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 and his characters, uh, which I will say, I I'm speaking a lot about Rudolph as a writer, but I will say he also finds this in directing as well. The way he utilizes space, the way he has actors moving throughout space, the way he's editing, um, He's worked with a number of lovely editors across his, his entire career, including the gentleman who uh, edited Mac and me, I discovered yesterday. Um, <laughs> it's very funny. Um, I think to somebody who hasn't necessarily been exposed to Alan Rudolph before, there's sometimes what he's doing, the decisions that his characters are making, how they're behaving within a scene, or how they're behaving across the film in, in Toto, sometimes can almost seem like it's being weird or random for random sake i was watching mm -hmm. an alan rudolph movie with my wife who had never seen any before uh and she just said drugs at a certain point and i was like yeah yeah i mean i i, <laughs> I understand it i understand it but i do i do think that there's a lot of purpose behind these certain contradictions and um that he he often starts his characters from a pretty archetypal place and then finds ways to undercut that and finds ways to contradict that. Even in this movie, it's something that's very interesting is like Laura Flynn Boyle is this very bookish, quiet, self-reserved woman who seems, we mostly seem to see her at home. And yet literally every scene she's in, she's drinking alcohol of some kind in it. <laughs> and it's just another of these sort of strange flavors that he brings out of these characters, which again, I think says something really unique and interesting about her character that it is like, there is maybe this thing brewing beneath her that she, she's not able to express that she, that she is constantly turning to these things for. 
Yeah. And it's funny too. I mean, you know, at a sort of metatextual level to consider her character as like Laura Flynn Boyle at this point in her career is probably like at the height of her power. She's as popular as she's going to get, you know, around the, the era of Twin Peaks here. Um, a, you know, certified sex symbol, like, you know, a, a gorgeous, gorgeous person and like a great actress. And she's uh, playing, like you said, this very bookish, very quiet kind of solitary woman who's very in herself and occasionally has these sort of self-expressions where she puts on a record and dances with a pillow alone in her living room, you know, in these very evocative and interesting ways. Um, but you're right. Like all these characters start from an interesting place of like an archetype. And then the rest of the the film is how can we embellish upon this? How can we uh, change this from the perception that you have or the expectation that you have for these characters? And I think it kind of starts with sort of the foundational idea that uh, I gathered from watching the film, which is very obvious just the beginning when you see this kind of the the depth of this socioeconomic strata that's been constructed for us in that opening shot. And that every single character in the movie, save for maybe Henry, one of our main characters, has uh some sort of desire for upward mobility in their life or some sort of social mobility and it's baked into the entire film uh rudolph is not someone who i necessarily you know like now having watched consider like a super political filmmaker but i think something that i really love about him is how materialist curvatures are are interwoven into this, you know, kind of tapestry that he's constructed for us. He reminds me a lot, actually, of uh, of the great Michael Ritchie in that way. Yeah, where he gets true. to kind of throw in this sort of broad satire and these social commentaries, but they never kind of uh, overpower, overtake the the principal kind of construction of the narrative. No, absolutely. And I mean, uh, Freddie Ace, the bad Matthew Modine, literally has a line about, "I just want a million dollars and a tank of gas." Yep. <laughs> uh, or even, or even one of the first scenes we see with Fred Ward is this amazing shot of him watching a TV that's just a channel of women dancing topless, but at the bottom there's a stock ticker. It's perfect. It's, <laughs> it's incredible. Besides the uh, instructional uh, self-defense videos, the fact that there is a, ostensibly some television channel in this world that even plays in the back of taxi cabs too, I guess, that's just tits and stocks is uh, <laughs> remarkable. <laughs> well, and even they, he, Rudolph even takes it another level of then a woman in dresses in front of Fred Ward. He's holding her and then she's facing the TV and she goes, oh, the market's down. And Fred Ward flips around <laughs> as if as if he's just been horrifically interrupted. Yeah, it's it's uh, fantastic stuff. And, I, you know, it, uh, a recurring motif in the film, too. Everywhere we look, there is also billboards and signage reminding us of uh, the lottery. And uh, Laurie Singer at one point, too, there's a really funny kind of aside, like an interstitial moment where she is uh, left at home as, you know, kind of the doting wife of bad Modine. Uh, we'll continue to call him. And she just has the largest pile of scratchers that you've ever seen. And like, like it's like a Tony Montana cocaine mountain of just like scratchers that she's. It's like an assembly line. <laughs> it's like an assembly line where she's like 20 of them lined up in a row and she's just going down the line. Yeah. And, you know, all so all of this stuff, you know, kind of harkens to 
uh, sort of the the central need, this kind of onus of all the characters of uh, needing to rise above their particular station and oftentimes do that through uh, means that are not in any way meritocratic, right? Like there's this sort of fantasy element to the movie that is centrally about kind of the luck of the draw, you know, this opportunity by birthright to earn all of this money and everyone else within this world is also seeking uh, a lucky break sort of, of, of the same kind of caliber. It's also something that bad Modine, Freddie uh, even says to Fred Ward. Uh, Fred Ward points out that Freddie was an orphan and Freddie replies with, well, the good thing about being an orphan is you grow up to be yourself. Um, which, of course, the movie adds layers of irony onto that text because fundamentally at this point in the movie, you're also aware he doesn't know who he is mm-hmm. and he doesn't know what he hypothetically has been birthed into. Um, and, and this gets it, especially I think what you're talking about, upward mobility gets into that concept of fantasy that's really potent. Um, and when, when I say fantasy, I specifically mean the interior lives we conjure for ourselves. Um, particularly about who we want to be, who, what we see our life wanting to be, what it looks like in the future, what, what the ideal version of ourself is. And that's kind of the fun thing about twins in this movie is you basically have two twins who in some sense kind of want to be each other, but kind of also want to be a secret third thing. Uh, (laughs) And, 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 and nobody's happy and they're constantly wanting something else from their life. And the way in which these people's wants and desires fundamentally overlap and conflict with others um, actually ends up being a driving motivation of much of the emotionality of the movie. It's sort of a, I mean, it's very fascinating, you know, that there's this kind of fantasy element that you're talking about. And still within the context of the movie, it's clear that Rudolph is building this up as a, an attractive fantasy, one that we all share, but from the outset, one that is, I don't know even how to say, not ignoble, but, you know, something that is uh, sort of a fallacy of our lives that we sort of buy into as a, a result of our environment and sort of the the uncaring and sort of unrelenting nature of a society that we've built. And this, I think, is where I get into, you know, like I said, he's not a political filmmaker, but there's something resonant here when we kind of think of the capitalist grind. And from the outset, we're introduced to, you know, Tyra Farrell's character who says explicitly in the movie, I'm going to make a million bucks writing this fantasy book because people's lives are so shitty that they'll have to buy my fantasy because it's their only escape. It's their only outlet. And then she buys into, you know, this, this real life fantasy, this opportunity for, for class mobility that she's found at the hands of this sort of incidental, uh, you know, coming across of this letter uh, and trying to figure out how to reward these, these two uh, lost children of this person of nobility who has this mass fortune. But yeah, everywhere we look in this movie, there is this this interiority, there's this fantasy life, there's this richness there that people strive for and seek for and want for themselves. And the movie ultimately, I think, kind of tells us um, this is all a falsehood. This is all here is specifically to be a, a carrot dangling in front of you. No, it's it absolutely is. And I, I will say I, I particularly noted in our, our pre-interview conversations that I was like, I feel like this is sort of a, a other side of the coin of trouble in mind. Mm. Um, and I, I'll speak very broadly here because I don't want to spoil anything for anyone. But 
in Trouble in Mind, right at the end of the movie, there's this moment which seems as though everything has fallen apart and then it actually flips into pure joy and wonder and and it, it ends up being this really happy, beautiful ending. And ironically, actually, the last shot of Trouble in Mind almost perfectly syncs up with the first shot of Equinox. They're both of the sky in a very particular way, in a particular orientation. But Equinox seems to be the other side of the coin to Trouble in Mind, where this is one where what happens if your fantasy doesn't work out? What if fantasies are, what if your fantasy was wrong from the start? What if you had a fantasy and you had a chance to achieve it and you missed that window? It's it's all of these sort of things overlapping and you end up at this really, um, this really pit of existential dread that the movie leaves you with um, that I, I will not spoil the last shot of this movie. Do not watch the trailer because it's in the trailer <laughs> and you're like, oh why God, would really? you put it there? Yes, it is. And it's very prominently in the trailer. And you're like, why would you put this shot in the trailer? It's maddening. Um, but it, it, it is one of the most beautiful helicopter shots I think I've ever seen in a movie. Um, and it's this excellent capping point to a dream that was missed, that was not realized. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, and that the window is closed and the place that leaves you in and who are you are and what does that mean now that everything you've been hoping your entire life for now is gone and you have to, and you have to continue on living. Yeah. There, there's also kind of like a, a, a liberatory sort of backbone to all of this too, in, in shedding yourself and removing yourself of these fantasies and not everyone gets there. Right. Like uh, as you already mentioned, the, the film's kind of emotionality and the crux of the film's sort of, uh, climax and, and grand realization sort of happens uh, because of the folly of Laura Flynn Boyle's character and her inability to really capitalize on and capture a specific moment and opportunity in her life to rid herself of those kind of mechanics of control that she cares about so much in her inner life and even in her fantasy world. You know, like all of it is is so uh, tightly orchestrated. That she's not able to see that there is something here that, though imperfect, might present a real opportunity for something different and something closer to this happiness that everyone is striving for throughout the film. And and the movie, it doesn't go too heavy on the sort of, um, let's say, metaphysical element of fate of anything like that. But there are a lot of ways in which these things end up repeating themselves or, for example... There's a there's a shot near the end of the movie um, where Henry is driving in a car and he is looking at a photo of Laura Flynn Boyle. And it's actually an almost exact mirror of a similar scene earlier in the movie where his father, who he never knew, but his birth father, it ends up looking at a photo of his beau uh, longingly. Um, and it's and it's it's sort of is very delicate, at least in the way it, it's it's very blunt in the way of of emotionality. But in terms of sort of picking at a larger thread about who we are and what that means, it's a little bit it's a little bit it has a softer touch, which I really appreciate. It's never going to bang you over the head with sort of um where where it feels like Rudolph has led us or what what I think he believes. Yeah, and I think, you know, a, a big 
component of that is just how strong the characterization is in the film and how textured, how nuanced Rudolph allows those characters to become from those archetypes that he's built on. Uh, it, if we haven't expressed it enough already, I, I will just make a point to say Matthew Modine is excellent in this movie. Um, I, I know we've sung his praises a little bit already, but he's you know, kind of the, the center of this film. He's playing two roles that are very distinct. Uh, but even within the archetypes that were built here, you know, this kind of loser schmuck kind of, you know, like working class guy and this social striver of like a, a you know, second hand to a mob boss, there's compelling ripples, you know, with uh, with Freddie Ace, with with bad Modine, we'll call him. He is, uh, as as far as we can tell, a, a very loyal and dedicated like family man. Like he loves his wife. His wife's obsessed with him. And in fact, like Laurie Singer's character is one that is very funny because she sort of remains an archetype throughout and can't really express herself in any way besides like saying, I love you, Freddie. You're perfect. You're perfect. I love you over and over again. Um, but he, he, you know, he cares about his children. He cares about his wife. He's loyal to them. There's a moment where he even says to her like, I, I don't cheat on you. I'm, I'm I'm faithful to our relationship, despite the fact that I'm like out all the time and killing people and making money. Uh, and then we also see too that uh, Henry, the the good Modine, has some things about him that are uh, kind of yucky. You know, his relationship with Laura Flynn Boyle is one that gets very complicated very quickly um, when we initially think that it's just sort of this kind of unrequited. Uh, anxious sort of pining. Uh, and then we find out that they've actually slept together. And when it happened, he more or less forced himself on her. Uh, so at, at it's best, complicated. It's, at best, it's polite coercion. Uh, but at, at most, she she uses the word force, which I think is indicative of I think Rudolph is, is sort of planting a flag of it's like, hey, this sort of and this goes to speaking to the multiplicity of his characters that it's like, yes, this is an archetype, but even within this archetype in when that manifests in real life, there can be dangerous consequences to that. And the people who we see as bad guys, the people who we see as, you know, the, the villains of the story, regardless of what happens, it's like, they can be normal human kind, kind humans as well. Mm -hmm. So it's, it's something that's always, running throughout his work is that he he definitely uh he never wants to keep somebody in a box he's always willing to let his characters be real people that are that are growing and moving and changing and and defying expectations yeah and you know there's an interesting kind of thing going on here too with a lot of these characters that i i find kind of indicative of a lot of rudolph's work where uh many of them are are seeking out art as a means of their expression. We see it with Laura Flynn Boyle's character where she's kind of always in a book of poetry, trying to find ways to express herself thusly. Um, I think about like Joe Morton's character in Trouble in Mind as well, who's like a, a, a you know, kind of crook and a lackey, but also like a poet who's sitting in a diner, like, you know, writing out these verses. Um, even in this movie, Laurie Singer at the beginning, when we're introduced to her, uh, has recently purchased a very expensive painting that is uh, a man and a woman who are modeled much like herself and Modine uh, kissing like at a at an open window and it's called something like uh, 
stolen moment or something like that. And it's all of these kind of characters seeking out these ways to, as I said, sort of find a, a means of self-expression or communicate their interiority through these uh, through these pieces of art. And and I can't help but see that as sort of a kind of a cause of Rudolph's work more broadly in a sort of self-reflexive and, and meta level. Absolutely. And I'll say there's even uh, there's even times in his career where that's taken center stage. He has a very excellent movie called Songwriter starring Willie Nelson and Chris Christopherson. That's very specifically about the realities of being an artist and hmm. the the complications that come with it. But no, I, I, I think that just as his characters, Rudolph's characters are always wanting and wishing and yearning and and all of these things that he feels that way too. And I think he sees ultimately self-expression and creativity as, I, I don't want to say like a cure, but at least some kind of salve for, for understanding and appreciating who we are and who we can be. See that? She's been having an argument with her father for half an hour back there. She knows I'm here, but she barely spoke to me like we're complete strangers. Maybe you are complete strangers. Did you ever think of that, Russell? Are you kidding? She practically kissed me when I was walking out of the washroom the other night. Stop kidding yourself, Russell. How's it going with you, Tiger? How you making out with Sis? You gonna take her out soon? I'm not gonna take her out, Russell. I'm gonna take her away. I'm gonna be around her all the time, Russell. I love your sister. Maybe I'm finally facing myself like she said. Who said Beverly said this? I was sure that one day something was going to jump out at me. That either it would be another bad sign and destroy me right there, or that it would help me to figure out the whole damn mess, Russell, my damn mess. My sister Beverly figured out your whole mess? When did she have the time? That's why she's coming with me when I leave. Beverly's leaving the city. Liar. I'm not lying, Russell. And the sooner the better, before something happens, because things can change, Russell. Things can change just like that. I know all about good signs and bad signs, Patoza. When Anna gets off work, I'm gonna walk home with her. When I get there, yeah? I'm gonna go inside her apartment with her. So what do you think of that, huh? Now I have to go pee. You better not have that gun, Russell. Hey, I'm a nice guy with or without the gun. Don't, Henry. Henry, give me the gun. Give me the gun. Give me the gun. Give it to me. Give it to me. Don't do that. Don't do that. Shut up. Shut up. Shut up. Shut up. I want to talk about the conclusion of this movie without it getting too spoilery, but I feel like we are going to inevitably spoil it. So while we may not tell you too much about the last shot, know that we're going to wade here into territory that is uh, maybe best left going into cold if you haven't watched the movie already, if it's something that's important to you. But uh, the story has all these kind of characters and, and really does often operate as an ensemble. We get, you know, the two Modines, but we also see plenty of Laura Flynn Boyle. We see plenty of Tyra Farrell. Uh, and we also get to kind of know this sort of tertiary level to everything as well that's happening within uh, the restaurant that we mentioned as kind of this like station of return for everybody. And uh, it's run by a restaurateur named Eddie, I believe his name is, and his daughter, Anna. Um, and they're getting shaken down by the mob boss that Bad Modine works for. 
It also happens to be a regular haunt of Good Modine and Kevin J. O'Connor and uh, Laura Flynn Boyle as well. So they all happen to be there at the same time on the same day. Uh, And circumstances dictate that Kevin J. O'Connor's character is there preparing to meet the mob bosses and to try to protect uh, Anna, the waitress who he's kind of smitten with uh, and her father. He's armed. It's it's not a good situation, but everyone is there. And it just so happens that Bad Modine has very recently uh, offed one of the one of the lower level mob guys and has taken over his route. So the two of them are going to uh, connect with one another here at the restaurant. Played by Tate Donovan, and I've been rewatching VOC, and I was like, yes. "Oh, I totally forgot he's in this." God bless. I, you know, it's funny. I was talking about that with Carly yesterday. We were talking about Tate Donovan, and her reference points were different than mine. But she's like, "Tate Donovan, who is that?" I'm like, "You know Tate Donovan," and I'm like, "He's he's Jimmy Cooper," <laughs> and uh, she's like, "But I don't. I know him from other things first. And and uh, anyway, Tate Donovan, great in this for a reason that is never explained. Uh, he also. Um, is missing an arm. And I, I think that that's like just a fascinating kind of like little quirk to the character where he always is in sort of a, you know, like a, a double breasted suit with one of the arms sort of tucked into the, the kind of lapel of the jacket. Um, just, just gives him kind of like a, a mobster aura, I guess. Um, but again, like it, it, Rudolph here too, I, this is a digression of course, but even in these little moments when we talk about sort of, legacies and lineage and this sort of generational uh, opportunity or lack thereof, a lot of the reasons why Tate Donovan's character ultimately gets killed uh, is because of the ways in which he reminds Fred Ward's character, the mob boss, Mr. Paris, of his father. And (laughs) there's a, a wonderful line where he says something about Tate Donovan's character, I think his name is Richie, his dad, and says, you know, kind of a loud mouth, kind of an asshole. Uh, If I remember correctly, he ate a bullet. Maybe his kids on the same diet. (laughs) And I think it's it's wonderful. It's it's just terrific, kind of like good mob boss writing. Absolutely. Um, Shifting back to what you were talking about, the the sort of climax. Mm -hmm. As I was saying earlier, it's this it's this nexus point of pretty much the entire movie where almost everybody that's been involved with the movie at some point starts, end up, ends up showing here uh, at the diner. And it's funny, even characters who uh, are there sometimes don't even end up inflecting the plot or, or changing things. But uh, the, the moment happens where um, the two different Modines, Henry and uh, Henry and Ace see each other for the first time. And it's, it's this really like genuinely beautiful moment. Um, I generally think like the last 20 minutes of this movie are some of Rudolph's strongest filmmaking period. Um, Cause just everything comes together so well and so beautifully. Uh, but, but particularly the moment where Modine and Modine finally, finally share, share a eyes and then a, another thing happens. Mm-hmm. It is this really beautiful, tragic version of all of these different people looking for this different version of themselves, looking for this other part of them that's out there that they could be attaining. And then you, you actually get to have this moment where these two men are experiencing it in real time. Um, And I think, I think he's so good at, at providing this emotional reality 
um, this really beautiful, emotional, grounded reality to scenes. And I think that scene is like one of one of my favorite things that he's ever done. Yeah. And the juxtaposition before sort of the explosive climax, too, is uh, one of my favorite moments in the film where we see kind of the the dichotomy here and these two characters sort of distinct perspectives or at least their feigned perspectives. There's sort of this desperation in uh, in Henry's character at the moment. He's sort of trying to compel uh, Kevin J. O'Connor's character, like not to don't don't shoot these mobsters who are coming in. Like, let's get out of here. Let's go do something else with our lives. It's a moment where after, you know, 90 minutes of, of more or less inaction and uncertainty on Modine's part, it's sort of starting to uh, catalyze into him making a real decision, which is I'm, I want to leave here. I want to, uh, you know, go on on the road and travel. And I, I want to bring your sister. I want to bring Lara Flynn Boyle with me as well. Like, uh, you know, I, I've, I've finally seen the sign, he sort of says here. And then he even, I think, mentioned specifically, he's like, I always thought that there was going to be a sign, some sort of indication for me that my life was going to change. And as he's having this conversation, Bad Modine is in the kitchen with the restaurateur and his daughter, shaking him down, threatening violence, trying to get money out of him, and sort of, you know, kind of casually spitting out this sort of kind of like nihilistic idea where he says something i can't even remember what he says but he's talking about you know some sort of like allegory or symbols or something and then he just says all of it it doesn't mean a goddamn thing he's talking about rules he's mm-hmm. talking about he's talking about the cycle of life and that a frog a frog eats a bug and then the frog dies in the water and then the water gets eaten up by a plant then the bug eats the plant Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, and he is like, all of this, it all means nothing. And then, of course, moments after he says that, he is faced with this like extreme existential reality where he's clearly having a f- fundamentally life shifting uh, moment. And, you know, the, the movie ultimately kind of uh, ends in, in on a tragic note for, you know, for at least one of the characters here. But then afterward, there's this kind of coda, uh, as we mentioned, that is kind of more of a a liberatory moment for Henry, for Good Modine, where he does ultimately kind of shed many of his belongings and and his life and kind of goes out on the road. And uh, this is where actually I think, you know, Rudolph has historically done some very stylistically uh, flashy things. And in this movie, he certainly gets opportunities to do it. But these are where we start to see him playing around with a lot of mirrors and a lot of interesting shots. And he throws more twins in here as well with Modine at a diner. And, uh, you know, reading some interviews and some quotes from him on the film, he claims this sort of coda as the point at which Henry finally faces his real twin, which is himself that it is a moment where he's finally outside of all of the signs, outside of all of the kind of factors of his life that he's looking to to make decisions for him. He finally sees himself in the mirror and uh, holds himself up to it and realizes that the agent for change is is right here in front of him. No, absolutely. And and uh, there, I mean, there's even a shot of, it's it's like, the second or third to last shot, but he he's walking up to a phone booth uh, and the, the reflections in him, it, 
I should note, Alan Rudolph loves mirrors. Mirrors are everywhere. There yeah. are every interior. There's a mirror somewhere. Um, but but the, he walks up to a, a, a phone booth and the reflection of him isn't just a reflection of him, but it's this sort of bifurcated window. So it's actually two reflections of him staring back at himself. Yeah. Uh, and it, and it's this perfect, uh, it's this perfect conclusion of the story of a guy who's sort of trying to get away from himself ultimately and is then being confronted with the reality that he is the one who he is he is himself he has to be the one who changes his life he's the one who needs to make decisions and ultimately we get this we get this shot of him looking into the the uh, the the abyss as it were um <laughs> with let's say his whole future in front of it mm-hmm yeah, it's like a really staggering, kind of startling ending. And not because we haven't come to expect it from the type of movie that we've gotten here, but it is one that is, like I said, so distinct um, and so kind of inherently what Rudolph is good at, which is playing with these kind of genre conventions and sort of juggling these different tones and arriving at something here that is so cathartic for a character, but also for an audience um, that. I don't know. I just, I I found myself mesmerized. If I'm not doing a good job of really conveying just how ecstatic I was when I saw the ending to this film, uh, please know it was there. I I was practically hooting and maybe hollering at the end of this, just with, with the, the revelation of that kind of emotional core of this movie. No. And it's, and it's funny because the sequence of him driving off on his own is maybe five minutes And yet in its own, it's sort of this like Michael Mann-esque coda of a man on his own with his car in the desert, you know, like trying to find himself and and trying to see what the future holds. Uh, It's it's really beautiful. And and part of the reason I I really do stick up for this movie in particular, um, as it's very clear, I love a lot of Alan Rudolph movies. but this one holds a particular place in my heart as I think it's it's this really interesting perspective uh, that he he's able to give uh, at this specific time with these group of people. Um, and I'm, I'm really glad that it's still around, even if it's just in shitty SD quality. <laughs> I agree. And it certainly doesn't detract from the overall just sort of majesty of watching this thing. We've talked a lot about Rudolph now as sort of a, a writer, as a, a constructionist of, of stories and, and genres and kind of a juggler of tones here. But uh, from a technical level, he does things that are so miraculous with the camera. And a lot of this comes, I think, from you know, working with Altman and and the way that he employs the camera to different means, of, of course, but his films feel constantly in motion. And even so, they don't feel aggressive. It all feels very informed and it feels, I don't know, there's almost like a, an omniscience that feels very gentle, though, like we're kind of in, in the hands of a very divine sort of uh, entity here that is guiding us to a logical point that we're intended to look at and and the the place where we will arrive at the 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 strongest and richest kind of core of a scene and its its goal 
it absolutely gets at something inherent in his work, not to be about twins and polarity and whatever. But as we've talked earlier, so much of his movies are about sort of vacillating between these two points, between different tones, between these. And he's able to make the transfer so smooth. And it, it usually the thing that does it is his camera. Um, it's usually not done on the screenplay level. It's usually done in staging the actors. In There's a great, great shot of just this one moment where um, you feel like Laura Flynn Boyle has made a concession to Good Modine. Uh, and he like leaves the scene without saying anything and exits the space. And you're kind of gutted for a second. And then he comes back mm-hmm. into the space yes. and, and gives her a kiss and says a, a word of reassurance. And so it ends up being this thing of like, you're both feeling the state that these characters are in very, very potently. And then he's still able to convey what needs to be conveyed. It's mm-hmm. uh, it's it, it, he is technically extremely strong in his camera movements, his decisions, a lot of the a lot of the things that he's coming up with, like it's it's honestly astonishing that he's doing it at this level of a production because there's just there's so much design involved on every level. Definitely. I, I love that shot that you're talking about. And every so often I feel like, you know, some of the the groundedness and the reality of the the, the shots themselves, the compositions, the kind of textures kind of give way to something slightly supernatural or fantastical there's there's one moment in in this film that echoes another moment in choose me where a character uh who's not really there like says a line and briefly shows up within the frame and then kind of disappears again uh it's used to great effect in choose me because it's genevieve uh, bajold who is uh, a radio host and she's on air and then she briefly wanders into the frame of the woman she's talking to on the phone, who also happens to be her roommate, as we know. Uh, and then the camera kind of pans back around to the place where she just was as it was gliding past her and she's gone. Um, and so we know and realize that it's just like, you know, this 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 tiny little fantastical flourish that's there for a moment. I think they do the same thing with Modine. I can't remember which one of them it is in this film. But, it's um, it's uh, bad Modine with his wife his wife awakes in the middle of the night looking for him Mm -hmm. uh, and something has happened again that's all i'll say something has happened and he appears very very briefly uh and then it moves over to laurie singer and then back to where he quote unquote was and there's nothing there yeah it's i mean it's gorgeous stuff it's uh it's just incredible to watch. And it's it's so distinct, I think, is the thing about it that I, I just kind of marvel at, which is here's a filmmaker who, as I watch, I, I get to say, I don't think I've ever really seen anything like this. And it all feels very kind of naturalistic and it all feels familiar. None of it is uh, too heavy handed in it. And it very rarely kind of wanders into places that feel overtly like cinematic in their plotting all of that stuff happens sort of in the interiority of the characters and the expressions of these you know kind of broad emotions and the ways that the characters interact with one another but i've just never really experienced movies like the ones that alan rudolph makes he's 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 singular and anyone who's listening to this i just encourage you to go out and see what you can um, I have personally never seen an Alan Rudolph movie that I didn't particularly enjoy. <laughs> um, 
I again, as we were stating back here earlier, um, remember my name, choose me, trouble in mind, uh, even this afterglow, which he made a few years later, or even um, something that gets brought up with him a lot is uh, the somewhat famous Mrs. Parker and the Vicious Circle, which mm. is very good. But I will note that like some really intense Rudolph partisans find him to be a little bit less present in that. And it's a little mm. bit more about um, the story itself than it is necessarily about his filmmaking. Uh, I still, I still would very much vouch for it as a very good movie, extraordinary Jennifer Jason Lee performance also filled to the brim with every 90s character actor um but uh even even after that afterglow also there's mm. he's made a, a a number of really really excellent pieces of work that are all both wonderfully in conversation with each other but you can see on its own and absolutely uh feel like you've seen something really special that's how i feel about equinox i'll give a, a very brief perfunctory reference to the cinematic world of Clint Eastwood, as we often do on this show, which is that uh, the aforementioned Ray Meets Helen, the the last movie that he's he's done, uh, also features Sandra Locke's last acting performance before her passing. I, I'm just excited to explore him, and I hope that other people will follow along and follow suit as well. We already mentioned he's a, a hard filmmaker to come by sometimes in, in certain ways, finding good versions of his movies that aren't uh, interrupted by commercial breaks. Uh, it doesn't, uh, I, I think, uh, remove any of the magic from the movie. You know, it's, it's kind of like watching on cable and it's still great. Uh, but I, I will just, I'll second your encouragement here to continue to seek out anything you can by Rudolph, um, just a remarkable filmmaker. And I'll note one other thing that I feel like I should uh, mention, which is that there's a lovely little tome by um filmmaker and critic dan salit um excellent writer excellent critic um who wrote uh, this long conversation it's a it's a long introduction to the general work and themes and recurring characters and characterizations inside of rudolph's movies um you can find it pretty easily by just googling dan salit uh alan rudolph but it's a it's something he actually uh a Michigan Arts Association housed some of uh, Alan Rudolph's films because he's originally from Michigan. And they asked Dan to present this talk and he thankfully published the full version of it on his blog. So I really encourage people to check that out. If, uh, if you're maybe seeing one or two and you're starting the piece together, the sort of ways in which they all link and, and show off Rudolph's identity. Yeah, absolutely. We'll uh, make sure to actually link to that uh, Salit piece because it's, uh, as a monograph, it is, I think, the most thorough, comprehensive, and informative thing uh, that that is really even available on Alan Rudolph's work uh, on the internet that isn't behind a paywall or you know maybe published somewhere uh, more obscure. So we will definitely make sure that our listeners get a chance to read it. It is well worth your time. Uh, I, I read it twice, in fact, for this, and and it was rewarding uh, both times. Uh, on the subject of this film in particular as well, I think that uh, we should also mention uh, in regards to the availability or lack thereof of many of Rudolph's works, this one is one that is particularly difficult to come by. Uh, as I said, there is no current home video release of this. It is not available to stream anywhere to rent, save for Apple TV+. Plus. 
with that in mind and uh, a, a knowledge that it will probably be hard for many of our listeners to get a hold of this film, I will say that if you reach out to us here on the show at hitfactorypod at gmail.com or to Jason on Twitter, we'll make sure to, to link him there as well. Uh, we will be able to direct you to uh, perhaps a digital version of this film that you can watch and enjoy. Uh, I, I think that uh, it's it's only right to do that. And as you mentioned uh, before we started recording, Jason, that it seems like we may also have the blessing of the filmmaker himself. For sure. Uh, see, seeing the movies is more important than anything. That's what I'll say. I, I agree with that. So yes, hitfactorypod at gmail.com. You can email us there and we will uh, do our best to, to try to make sure that you can watch this film uh, as well as listen to us talk about it. Uh, but beyond that, I, I know that this has been kind of a, a speed run of Alan Rudolph today and this film. Please try to find an opportunity to watch it. Please try to find an opportunity to watch Alan Rudolph, um, a, a filmmaker worthy of and in desperate need, I think, of a reclamation project more broadly. And, and I'm, I'm happy and thrilled that we might be able to be a part of that effort uh, to just sort of vocally champion him as an artist uh, and really thankful to you, Jason, to uh, as someone who is able to come on and be my my expert, as it were, my subject matter expert uh, in the world of Alan Rudolph today. Uh, super happy to be here. Uh, hopefully won't be the last. Uh, and uh, thanks for thanks for having me. Of course. This was a great one to settle on. We had talked about a couple of other films that maybe we, we'd want to talk about, but uh, very quickly arrived at uh, the reality that to uh, do it without Carly would be a disservice to her, probably. Um, so we have a couple more lined up. You will definitely be uh, joining us again on the show. It's been a, an absolute delight. Thank you again. It's been super fun. I'll just ask at the end here, Jason, uh, where can people find you and your work around the internet? Uh, I have a link tree that I can include uh, in the in the show notes or whatever, but uh, I'm pretty much B-R-O-N-C-O, Bronco like the horse, 7732 on everything. Twitter, Letterboxd, Instagram, uh, by all means, I'm on the, I'm on the Hit Factory Discord. Uh, I absolutely would recommend spending some time there. It's a lovely place. Uh, but anytime uh, anyone needs anything, I'm, I, uh, I love to help. I love to help being able to spread the good art to good people. Fantastic. We'll make sure to, to get that link uh, into the show description. From our end of things, uh, you can follow along with us as always uh, at Hit Factory Pod. That's on Twitter and Instagram. I've taken a slight step back on the Twitter as of late. It's been uh, a little bit of a difficult user experience, but we're available on Blue Sky still. We're in that Discord. Uh, so find us wherever you can on the internet if you can. Uh, you can also get into our Patreon and listen to all of our bi-weekly bonus content there, patreon.com slash hitfactorypod. It is the full Hit Factory experience. I was just going to say there was a great episode, um, The Green Snake, a personal favorite of mine that you had with Nadine Smith, also a good friend of mine. Uh, love, love that episode. I would sincerely, highly recommend people join the, join the, uh, the Patreon. It, it really is worth it. Well, thank you, Jason. Yes, take Jason's word for it if, you, if you're not willing to take mine. Uh, Nadine, too, actually a huge champion of Alan Rudolph. I actually have her to thank for uh, getting me, uh, uh, getting my hands on quite a few of his films that uh, I, I've been meaning to, to see. So thank you to Nadine. Uh, 
But uh, patreon.com slash hitfactorypod to follow along with us there to get an invite to that Discord where you can hang out with us. Uh, I'll give a shout out to our overlords, Linda, Jesse K, Jared Murray. Thank you all for your continued support, especially. Uh, and we will catch you all the next time. Take care, everyone.